We're an advertising agency with a success story uh, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, honestly. I mean, we <laughs> I'm not just saying this uh, for sympathy, but we're actually a cosmic joke. Um, and I'll, I'll get into, into that a little bit later. But I, what I wanted to do is share this evening was a bit odd, perhaps, but I wanted to do a little excavating and unearthing of, of Wyden and Kennedy and how did we end up making the agency we made and how has it survived this, this time. And hopefully there are bits and pieces that, that may be helpful, but at least slightly amusing. We never had had a mission statement, but when we hired, eventually we hired this CFO who um, was very, very, very businesslike, and he locked us up in a room for three days and said, you're not coming out of there until you've got a mission statement. So we tried to make something simple. Wyden & Kennedy exists to make strong, provocative relationships between good companies and their customers. Cool. We make relationships. And how exactly do we go about making those? Well, for decades, we've been making ads that make the relationships between our clients and their customers. Ads like these. And this, I'm not going to show you a bunch of my work. I, there's just, we just grabbed three fairly recent ones. And uh, here you go. Sons have fun with women and misbehave. 
with just my little sweetie Tiny fingers, hands and feet He's now he's touching, kissing, feeling all the women Because all I'd love to see raised hands of, of everybody here that is 26 or under. That spot was created by two young women who were 26 years old, and they did that spot, and it just shows to Goya, you will be surprised what young people can do. Isn't that amazing? I guess our ability to come up with provocative ads is what makes the nature of our clients' relationships with their customers. But continuing to follow this trail back even further, what is it that allows Wyden and Kennedy to make the right kind of provocative ads in the first place? That's, what, that's what's so, so weird about it. Because it turns out it's culture. Culture at our place, and maybe at yours, wherever you work, is apparently what drives everything. And you have to understand, we started um, in the most ridiculous place uh, you possibly could, in Portland, Oregon. I mean, Portland, Oregon is not... I, I don't think anybody knows where Portland, Oregon is here, do you? I mean, it was a small city uh, at the time, about 1,250,000 people. And... Um, there was one really solid 
uh, consumer products industry, which was Nike, and they were like just getting started. But that's how that's how we began, and and um, I put up five hundred dollars. Kennedy put up five hundred dollars, and we rented the basement room in an old uh, broken down labor temple. And we couldn't even afford a phone. We had a pay phone at the end of the hall. We'd run down there when the damn thing rang and say, <clears throat> "Why didn't Kennedy?" <laughs> and uh, so that that was, and then. It was just so simple and so crazy because the only people that would ever consider moving to Portland were people that had been fired everywhere, or, or were just kids right out of school. And we, I guess, that's probably it. And some some of my predecessors here on the stage have kind of said this that they began as a, a ship of fools. I know that's what I would call it, and I finally believe that is exactly why we've succeeded. We were struggling to figure out what an advertising agency actually was, and our one and only client was trying to figure out what the hell he was going to do with us. And when it came to marketing, both companies were incredibly naive. You might even say stupid, but sometimes stupid can work for you. When you don't know, you try desperately to find out. But the minute you think you know it all, the minute you go, "Oh yeah, I've been here before." Um, no sense of reinventing the wheel. That's when you start believing your own historic wisdom, and you're dead. You're not stupid anymore. You're freaking dead. So good, we figured out the importance of being stupid. Um, but stupid or not, it wasn't long before the holding companies came after our people. Because at that time, pretty soon Nike started doing some interesting work, and then we picked up some work from ESPN, and they started they started get, giving our folks huge salaries and. They left, and we couldn't match those salaries. And and every day it seemed we we tried to find a way to hang on to these fantastic people that we'd been grooming. And then it hit us: we'll never match the big boys' money. It's impossible. But fuck the money. We've got to create a culture that's so damn weird, so wild, so sticky that it would hurt your very soul to leave the place. And that culture. If it seems as our highest priority, and matured and nurtured properly, it just might create the kind of environment that will not only retain our best people, but inspire them to do the best work of their lives. So it kind of goes like this: it's the culture that lifts the people. It's the people who make the work. It's the work that makes the relationships. Between good companies and their customers, what kind of freaky culture you got there, Mr. Wyden? Well, <laughs> it's kind of hard to describe, but、um, I'll tell you one thing that happened to me a long time ago when I was in my twenties.、Um, I was working for a forest products company in Portland, Oregon, and I was sort of the the hippie inside of a very very conservative company, and.、Uh, I sort of acted out、uh, quite a bit, and、uh, eventually they fired my ass. And、um, and I went from being really cocky and just sort of ornery and self-grandizing,、uh, and but when they when they actually fired my ass, I I went down and sat in the in the seat of this old Falcon wagon and said, "How am I going? To, I've got a wife." And three children, another one on the way. I mean, how the hell is this going to work? So, 
I didn't even drink. I was afraid to do anything. And I, I finally, I went home and walked down the basement. I could hear she was down in the basement, and I, and uh, she was taking clothes out of the dryer and folding them, and with a pregnant, with our fourth child. And she heard me, and she just said, without looking up, she said, um, "So how'd work go today?" I said, um, "Well." <clears throat> They fired my ass. And she spun around and looked up at me and said, Oh, something will come up. Shit, oh dear. I mean, she gave me what I could not give myself, which was permission to fail. And that's one of the biggest things I, we have in, that's the heart of the soul of this agency, is fail harder. You have to be able to fail if you're going to do anything worthwhile. And, um, and the other thing I really try and encourage people to do is, um, well, we have in, in the London office, there's this uh, mannequin with a briefcase, and a, on, instead of a head, he actually has a blender. And um, on his briefcase is this big sticker that says, walk in stupid every morning. And um, that's really important, too. You know what I mean? Um, you can't take yesterday's thing over. Start, just pretend something's happened in the world and you just missed it. So figure it out. And one of the most amazing things in our culture, I think, has been is when any office you walk into, there's picture walls. I'm not, this is all verbal. I'm not going to show you any pictures. You have to imagine this shit. But when you, whenever you walk into any of our offices, you'll see pictures of the people that work there. There's no awards. We never show awards. It be stupid. So it's just pictures of our people expressing themselves in a deeply personal kind of thing. Uh, some woman sat on a toilet and we shot that. Some people hang from trees and we do that. But, but the point of it is, and I, I, was, watch, I was looking at the, one of the walls the other day and I thought, you know, this is really what we're trying to solve is how do you create a culture where you're encouraging everyone to be utterly themselves, and to stretch, to stretch what they think they can do and who they really are, and to experiment with all that, and become their own person, and feel empowered by that. And if you do that, how do you take a strong individual like that, put them together with other strong individuals, in a way that makes you work together to solve problems? And when the, when the work comes together, and then you go, you don't care who, does, who comes up with the solution, it's just, shit, that's better than what I did. That, that, kind of, that kind of chemistry, that kind of culture is what has helped build this place. I kind of have an addiction to chaos. Um, I kind of love it when I'm anxious. And the older I get, the more I need what upsets me, what shocks me, what makes me squirm or get angry. The older I get, the more I value what forces me to take a second look, the more I respect people who don't automatically respect me. Honestly, from the very early days, I love this agency the most when it's off balance, when it's like we're in a car moving 7,000 miles an hour, you know, trying to make a sharp left turn and everybody's holding their breath and some of them are puking and everybody's <laughs> leaning to one side to keep the damn thing from rolling over, you know. I just love that shit. And uh, 
Some of the beliefs are more mine than others in the agency, and to be honest now, um, uh, don't you kind of love a little touch of chaos now and then? Seems to me chaos does this amazing thing that order can't. It engages you. It gets right in your face with its freakish breath and issues a challenge. It asks stuff of you that order never will and shows you stuff, all the weird shit that order tries to hide. Okay. Chaos is the only thing, the only thing that honestly wants you to grow, the only friend who really helps you be creative, that demands that you be creative so you can make something that matters. Now, clearly, there are some disciplines in this agency that really don't need chaos in their operating policy. Finance comes to mind. <laughs> We're pretty stick in the mud when it comes to <laughs> finance. Don't fuck with the money. Uh, but perhaps the most important thing about chaos is that it will challenge authority. And it cares more about truth than power. I remember this time where a U.S. Senator, Bill Bradley, popped by um, to talk to the agency, and, and um, he wasn't there to lecture or anything. He just wanted to sit down with some young people and kind of feel what was happening. And um, it was a very, very frank, uh, open conversation. And on the way to the airport, he said, what an amazing group of people, Wyden. They're so young, so bright, so well-informed. But I got to tell you, um, what was most astonishing was the complete lack of deference to you or to me or to anybody. And the senator wasn't really complaining. He was just mesmerized by the informality and the absence of any obvious authority. So time goes by. So what happened to that wild little agency? It started to grow and balloon out, balloon out of all expectation. Well, things got a little different. In 1993, we had sent troops out to Amsterdam to open up an office. Shortly thereafter, we opened another in New York. After a while, we next was London, then Tokyo, then Shanghai, followed by Delhi, and almost recently, and most recently, Sao Paulo. Yeah. That's weird. You wake up one morning and you're a fucking network. <laughs> With some 1,500 people and billings in excess of $3 billion. My God, the scale change everything. Process begins to sneak its way inside. Order becomes comfort. Chaos is showing the door. It reminds me of this great, <laughs> this great story. Any, you guys know Krishnamurti at all? Anybody? He was, he was an amazing character. But anyway, he, tell, he told this story, and I've never forgotten it. And it was a story about God and the devil, who one night were hanging out on a street corner and having a conversation, when all of a sudden this human being showed up, came out of the shadows, and walked across the street, and he got about halfway through and saw something on the ground, and 
stopped and reached down and picked it up. And was, it was, he was transformed. I mean, just absolutely transformed. And he, and he walked off to the other side. And God said to the devil, Now see, that man discovered truth. And the devil took a big pull on his cigarette and said, Yeah, I'm going to help him organize it. <laughs> it's the joke that isn't really a joke. It's the tension between God and the devil is what modern science would call a dissipative structure. A dissipative structure is something like a whirlpool that takes material in, takes order out, out of it, and throws, throws it out. Business organizations, like people basically, are essentially dissipative structures. They're more of a process than a thing. I always loved this quote from uh, Buckminster Fuller. I seem to be a verb. That was the title of one of his books. And I think that's true if you really think about it. You're actually a verb. You're not a noun. In most people's mind, order is identified with equilibrium, not chaos. It tends to be seen as balanced, predictable. We think we're helping when we organize our world that way. But first off, Capra said the following thing. If you are trying to create a creative organization, you should forget everything static. Static is the last thing you want. In the new science of complexity, we learn that non-equilibrium is the source of order. The turbulent flows of water and air, while appearing chaotic, are really highly organized. In a living system, the order arising from non-equilibrium is far more evident, being manifest in the richness, diversity, and beauty of the life around us. For the most part, the businesses you and I are in are dissipative structures, and they will reach the threshold of stability where they will either break down or break through to a new state of order. Is this too weird for you? You okay? <laughs> structures that reach this crisis point have several characteristics, including hypersensitivity to small fluctuations in the environment. Now, a tiny, random fluctuation can push the choice of a path. That is why during extreme periods of sensitivity, anything that happens inside an organization can prove momentous. During periods of extreme sensitivity, anything that happens inside an organization can prove to be momentous. At Widening Kennedy, we are indeed in a period of extreme sensitivity. The digital revolution is redefining the way people engage with this world. So it's changing the kind of talent we are bringing into our organization. It's changing the way we make. It's bringing its own culture into ours. And man, oh man, is this ever interesting. It is really interesting. And it's not an easy fix. You've got two different cultures coming together and trying to figure out how you complement each other. It's a momentous situation. But in these fluctuations at Widener Kennedy are creating big ripples. The non-equilibrium will either transform us or render us inert. We'll either break down or we'll break through. And if you'd like to hear a report from the front lines, I want to introduce you to Colleen DeCorsi on some film here. She's an amazing woman who started her own digital company, Socialistic, sold it and recently joined Susan Hoffman and our president, uh, David Luer on the global team. 
I don't want to be good at technology. I actually want to be incredibly bad at it. I want to be rude. I want it to be wrong. I want it to break. I want it to do things it shouldn't do. It is an interesting challenge. Nobody wants to be the person responsible for running a creative organization into a wall or off a cliff. Nobody also wants to be responsible for just being the invisible person that kind of sat alongside it and made sure that like the coal went into the bottom and the smoke kept coming out the top. We sit in this moment where we're we're figuring out how much stomach we have for this. That a creative organization is violent and messy and aggressive and has to want more than anything to make things. And in the making things, all of the emotion of the politics of who's right and who's wrong, and if it's good or bad or old or new, it goes away as long as we can figure out how to break these structures of how you make things and continue to serve up a thing. Do you like that thing? Did that thing make you feel anything? No, nothing. Is this good? Do you like that? Did that work for you? Okay, let's keep that. Do you want to get better at that? Mm, not particularly. I just want to say I've done it. Okay, let's put it over there. That's the way the organization has to work. And um, it's really hard to let yourself go there uh, when you can make beautiful and touching things that people still love. So I'm not afraid of the ambiguity. I don't fear for us that our system could implode. Um, the only fear I have is that we could decide we just don't. We don't want to. Whenever I, I start thinking about very sensitive moments that seem very, very important, and this is one of them for the agency, but I also think of a uh, poet, uh, William Stafford, who uh, grew up out in my neck of the woods, and um, he's quite an amazing guy, and he, he's also a teacher, and talking about very sensitive ways uh, to proceed, um, this is what uh, he said. I used to think, what can I say? What can I tell them that will make the term go right? And now I realize it wasn't what I was telling them. It was other things, like how I came in. It was how long I gave them to respond to each thing or to myself. I was a total participant if I could just be in what was happening. And I know that sounds a little weird, but if that's how sensitive this thing is, it's not necessarily the arguments you make or, or anything like that. It's what's happening inside you and inside the individuals in an organization that are going to make something really great or break down and be dust. That's kind of the real issue. So, come April 1st, Wyden and Kennedy will be 33 years old. That's when they crucified Christ. I just wanted you to understand that. <laughs> it's been 33 years of independence, and I've sworn in private and in public, that we will never, ever sell the agency. It just isn't fair that once sold, a handful of people would walk off with great gobs of money, and those left behind will either face salary cuts or be fired, and the culture will be destroyed. Now, oddly enough, we've never mentioned this before in public, but I'm going to do it today, that the partners and I got, got together couple of years ago and took our shares and mine and we put them in a trust, a trust whose only obligation is to never, ever, under no circumstance, sell the agency. It's now impossible. 
So what do you say? Let's shock the world. I mean, deep down, that's what the world really wants. It wants to be woken up, shaken up, turned loose. It wants to feel young again, uncertain, and curious as hell. Me too. Me too. Hope you. Thanks. Thanks.